we always talk about how endurance athletes, everything's moving in a forward direction, right? You run forward, you bike forward, you swim forward. And so your body likes to move in multiple planes of motion. Welcome to Running is Cheaper Than Therapy podcast. I am your host, Dr. Weta L. Brown. I inspire and promote movement. I explain how running adds to life from a mental wholeness aspect. How obstacles can be overcome in life to make it to your finish line. Welcome to Running is Cheaper Than Therapy, episode 82. Today, I welcome Liz Yearly. She is a physical therapist and she's been treating me since about 2014. I initially saw her with plantar fasciitis. If you listen to my podcast on a regular, I had plantar fasciitis for two and a half years. She's also seen me for a plethora of other injuries and uh, as well as post-surgery. She was recommended by another physical therapist who also went to college with me, Florida A&M University. I've been seeing her for years because she deals with a lot of endurance athletes, runners, triathletes. Actually, one of her athletic trainers in our office has done numerous triathlons. And he runs a marathon in about three hours, goes to work like it's nothing. He's amazing. He also will get up and just ride his bike to Wisconsin. So... I enjoy going to therapy at their facility because I feel like they get me. She challenged me so I don't really get bored and gets me back to what I love doing. So Liz is, again, a physical therapist. She's also certified athletic trainer, massage therapist. She offers a unique perspective on injury prevention, maintenance, and the rehabilitation of patients and her athletes. She has experience training anyone from a collegiate athlete to the weekend warrior. She sees many common orthopedic injuries, including post surgery and overuse injuries, which is common in the endurance sport population. She has a vast knowledge of biomechanics, which allows her to examine athletes' movement patterns and resolve dysfunction to help decrease injury and improve performance. She has a hands-on approach with focus on soft tissue dysfunction. Again, she has numerous certifications, active release or ART, dry needling, as well as other um, certifications that help in the treating of her patients or athletes. She's volunteered numerous triathlons and marathons, including Madison Ironman. She also developed the Chicago Recovery Room, which is open to the public. You don't need a prescription as a state of the art in recovery, has compression boots, ice bath, and they do a lot of education of athletes at all levels. And she tries to work with clients who may not be able to afford or have issues with insurance. So her goal is to provide access to as many people as she can. So welcome, Liz, to the show. Thanks for joining me today. You bet. Thanks for having me. So what made you want to become a physical therapist? I'll start with that. Oh, yeah. That's always the first question, right? Um, mm-hmm. So I was an athlete my whole life, and I've since learned that I was the classic trainer rad. I was always the the athlete that was in the training room trying to get tape, trying to ice, trying to like think I was an athletic trainer. 
But at any rate, when I was 16, I was playing basketball and I tore my ACL. So kind of a classic injury for young women. It wasn't the first in my family. My older brother tore his ACL. I tore my ACL. My younger brother tore his ACL. My dog tore its ACL. Your dog? My dog. So we were very, very familiar with kind of the therapy around that. So this was probably in 1996. The therapy was, you know, it was definitely season ending. It took a good nine months, 12 months to get back. The, The protocols were a little slower back then. So I was really exposed to physical therapy. And my mom tells a funny story that I went, I would go to therapy and I'd come home and I'd say, I think I want to be a physical therapist. She just puts me on the bike and drinks coffee. And so that was my... So you were bored. I mean, that is not at all what my, you know, my day-to-day looks like. But I really love my my physical therapist. Uh, she was super motivating. They got me back my junior and senior year. And so I think I just was... I knew I wanted to do the component of physical therapy that was related to helping athletes. So yeah, the kind of classic, I was injured and exposed to therapy and decided that's what I should do. So what other sports other than basketball did you participate in? I played softball. I liked basketball, but I was much better at softball, but I might have liked basketball more. You had any other injuries? I mean, not season ending injuries, but other injuries. You said you're in the training room all the time. Prior to, was this prior? Prior to my ACL, I had like a meniscectomy, which back then they just snipped and took things out. But besides that, I would have your classic like ankle sprain at the beginning of every season. I think I had a thumb injury one time playing catcher, just little things. But the ACL was definitely sort of that surgical intervention was the biggest uh, kind of rehab exposure to me early on. Okay. I noticed you have a bachelor's in psychology. Does that help you in your day-to-day dealing with patients? I like to say yes. I mean, I think that the psychology around healing is huge. They're starting to teach it a little bit more. But when I went to physical therapy school, they didn't touch on, I mean, they're calling it sort of pain science now and sort of the psychology of how you talk about pain, how you talk about imaging, how you talk about findings. All of that can be really impactful on how somebody perceives their injury and their ability to get back, you know, to performing. So psychology absolutely is a part of my job. And so I think having a, you know, a background in it as a bachelor's degree is absolutely helpful. I noticed you also have a number of certifications, um, athletic trainer, strength and conditioning specialist, active release technique, um, massage therapist. You do other things. Can you tell me a little bit about your certifications and what they add to your practice? Yeah, for sure. I started off with my athletic training. So when I was going to Marquette, you could become an athletic trainer. They called it the internship route. So I was taking a lot of the core classes to be applying for physical therapy school. And while I was doing that, I was knocking off the the same classes that you would need to be an athletic trainer. So I kind of worked as a student athletic trainer in the Marquette um, University training room. And that got me the clinical hours to sit for the board exam. They've since changed the the licensing. So now you have to actually have a master's degree for to be an athletic trainer. I was back sort of in this pre-internship <laughs> route, they called it. So um, I have maintained my athletic training license, which is super fun and kind of just sets me up to be a little bit more that first responder so I can deal with athletic injuries that happen right away. Most physical therapists in an outpatient setting, we see you after like the initial swelling, the initial injury, you might've seen a doctor already and we're sort of a week or so out. Um, As an athletic trainer, you're seeing the injury right as it happens and determining, you know, what this requires. Does this require a trip in the ambulance? Does this require an x-ray? Is this something that I can kind of initiate, um, treatment for. So that my athletic training, you know, was definitely relevant and I think super helpful in my physical therapy practice. I then later on decided to go and get my license uh, in massage therapy. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I really did that 
as a loophole to the Practice Act for Physical Therapists. So okay, back in the day, you had to be you had to have a prescription from a physician to go to physical therapy. Mm-hmm. And so there were so many people who would come to see me, and when they were finished with therapy, they'd say, you know, can I just come back for you to just you know, do that thing on my IT band. And I'd have to say, unfortunately, I, I can't. And that's not covered by your insurance. And so um, I was like, I could do this as a licensed massage therapist. So I went back and got my massage therapy in 2011. A few years after that, maybe several, like 2018, I think they, the Practice Act changed. So now we can actually see people without a prescription. We can do more wellness services as a physical therapist. So those are my three major, you know, licensures. You know, I'm a certified strength and conditioning specialist. I took that certification to learn about periodization and kind of the different ways of training that comes in, in handy in my practice. I can't say that I'm like doing personal training on a regular basis as far as developing plans for people. And then in physical therapy, you can get a million and one certifications in different techniques. So I do, you had mentioned ART or active release technique, which is super popular in the endurance world. Um, I have a Graston um, certification, which is that kind of scraping. I've recently got my the dry needling, dry needling um, advanced certification, which is also a, lo- a love hate uh, technique for people. So yeah, I'm always kind of looking for the next thing and trying to add that kind of, you know, tool to my toolbox. So you work with a number of different types of athletes. Do you find one type of athlete more challenging than the others or, or does it depend on the person versus the sport? It's probably a little more personality. You know, I think there's a general sort of stereotype about that endurance athlete or that Ironman in particular. I mean, somebody who's taking on that that level of commitment to training is typically more of your kind of type A personality or they re- they really identify, right? And so I think if somebody identifies as a certain type of athlete, it, it, it's more than just, you know, getting them back to running. I mean, it's getting them back to the thing they identify as. If you they can't do their sport, they can't run with their group, they can't go on the bike rides. I mean, they really struggle in their mental health. And so, I mean, obviously this is very relevant to your podcast. Um, and to me personally. There's so many people who say, you know, don't tell me to not run. I need it for my mental health. And so you got to really like weigh the pros and cons of like when rest is going to outweigh that mental health component or is there a way that we can keep them at least doing something to to keep them motivated and, and not going crazy, really. <laughs> mm-hmm. So how do you keep those type A endurance runners and triathletes? How do you keep them engaged? And because a lot of exercise with therapy, some people think it's kind of boring. Some of the the te- some of the tedious that you need to strengthen compared to actually going out and doing their, their sport. Because most, I know, if I'm short for time, I'll neglect strengthening. And that's a part of, and that's very important. So how do you keep people engaged into doing therapy when they just want to go run? It's really education and sort of even just saying, like, I, you've probably heard me a million and one time say, I know this is extremely boring. Like, I know this doesn't seem like a big deal. Um, but if you want to be a runner, you have to do these exercises. I also try to find like an exercise that appears easy and have them do it properly. And and a lot of times it's really hard. And so true athletes are really motivated by like, wait a second, why can't like, why is this lifting my leg up and down so hard? So if I can kind of find that one or two things that are a little bit challenging, it's sort of like I say, I got to kind of catch them, right? I got to grasp them and get them on board um, with understanding the importance of that. And then I explain how really the, the therapy exercises aren't just injury prevention, they're actually performing enhancing, right? Like if you have all of the little tiny stabilizers doing the right thing and all your foundational muscles doing the right things, 
you're going to be a much better athlete. The rest of your body has such a better base to work off of. So I try to explain that piece too, that it's not all about the grind, but it's some of those like nuanced kind of ancillary muscle work that's really, really important in keeping people uh, performing at their best and injury free. That makes sense. Do you have a favorite type of client or type of patient? I mean, would you say athletes or just a particular type of athlete? What would you want to say? <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I, I definitely like active individuals. I like athletes. Um, I find it challenging. No, yeah. I mean, I, I probably just like the more younger motivated. It's much easier to work with somebody who's kind of reaching for the same goal that you are. Like if I'm trying to get you better and you're trying to get you better, right? It's probably easier to answer the question, what kind of <laughs> patient do you not like to work with? It's, okay. sort of the, <laughs> it's sort of the like quick fix, right? Like physical therapy is is not a quick fix. And so that's a really hard sell to people. Um, there's some things that we can do that make you feel better, you know, right away. And, and maybe sometimes in those certain scenarios to, you know, resolve the situation. But for the most part, it's the education. So I, I like you know, patients that are willing and just as motivated as I am to get you back to doing what what you need to do. So what would you say is the most important aspect in rehab for a runner triathlete that they often overlook, like which particular focus or exercise? I know strength training I mentioned broadly, but yeah, you know, that's kind of a tough one too. I mean, strength, I think sort of the cross training and strength piece is really important in endurance athletes. We always talk about how endurance athletes, everything's moving in a forward direction, right? You run forward, you bike forward, you swim forward. And so your body likes to move in multiple planes of motion. So if you can get kind of the side to side muscles going and the transverse kind of the twisting motions going, that's going to help you. You don't use those in your everyday triathlon, the typical triathlon sports. So getting those kind of engaged and activated are, again, going to enhance sort of firing at all the cylinders at once. So, I mean, that important strength piece is, is key. I would say too, like, obviously with my history with the recovery room, I think that like athletes spend so much time on like finding, finding the right gear and getting the right training program and getting their nutrition on point and hydration, but they don't really think about recovery. They just maybe have a rest day. And I think that there's more than just rest. I think that um, you can be really proactive in your recovery. And so doing things to help your body recover during your off days and then keep you performing and get you back to performing. I think it's a missing piece um, in a lot of training programs or just sort of overlooked. And I, and I get it. Like there's so many pieces that that rest day, you're like, thank God, I'm just going to rest. But there's some simple things that you can do that are part of your rest day to kind of be proactive in that recovery piece. Like what would like on your rest day? Um, I mean, you know, obviously we like, we have a recovery facility, right? So there's a lot of cool tools, right? There's sometimes you can really use science, right? They're finding a lot of data around science and enhancing recovery. Um, we always encourage the use of our Normatec compression boots to help kind of work with your body's natural kind of valve and clearing system to like get all that, the toxins and the metabolite cleared out. There's different times to use ice, right? Um, there's a big debate in the, in the world of, of icing during recovery. So there's, there's components of that. But probably even more so like the, the stretching and the mobility work. And I even consider some of the recovery like the activation work of your muscles, right? Like that gluteus medius, that muscle that go, does the side to side work. That's part of recovery. Like you need to make sure it's staying on and firing. It's not always that it's going to be strong. It's more that it's going to awake and kind of working. And That's true because I have issues with mine, even though I've been doing those lovely exercises for years, it seems like. Right. Yeah. You're like, how is this <laughs> muscle not like, you know, the Arnold Schwarzenegger of muscles, but it's just, it's more of a like consistency with it, right? Just keeping it kind of turned on. It's, I think of it like the mental, like you're mentally keeping it um, activated and engaged. 
So you mentioned recovery room. That was my next question because I know that you like being involved in prevention, maintenance, and actually performing enhancement as well as a rehab after injury or surgery. Is it hard to incorporate that just with the therapy? Because most of the time you see patients after they're injured, after they neglected something or they've had surgery. So your recovery room kind of combines both of those or all of those components. Yeah. So, I mean, like for us, the setting is sort of like recovery room um, attached to a physical therapy clinic just makes a lot of sense for us. We think of it as a continuum of care. So we meet a lot of people where they come into the recovery room, they're already injured and they think doing compression boots is going to fix their injury. In that case, we're like, oh, actually, you probably need some physical therapy. We have a really popular service called a tune-up. Okay. And so uh, the tune-up is that soft tissue work, that kind of hands-on piece that's going to keep the muscles flexible and pliable and doing what they need to do. So again, it's that education piece of before and after therapy is when the recovery kind of parts fits in our model. So you do a lot of education as well as that's all. Yeah. So, I mean, you'll, you'll know when you finish a body therapy at our clinic, we give you a, res- a certificate that says, come back and try one of our tune-ups. Cause we think it's really important to be exposed to it. And some people don't really appreciate, you know, how helpful it can be in a training program. Um, I know it's probably kind of hard to explain the audio, but can you tell, well, I guess runners as well as endurance athletes, some basic exercises that you think they should incorporate in their their strength, even if it's just a couple of minutes to make them better. I know you mentioned side to side glute medias, but can you just describe a few exercises that I think all runners and triathletes should probably incorporate somewhere into their program? (laughs) Yeah, for sure. I I look at um, when I think about developing a program for runners, there's kind of four categories. There's a loaded category. So some type of squatting, deadlifting, doing a little bit more weight, I think is important. That used to be sort of frowned upon in the endurance running athlete. They wanted to be lean and trim. And now they're le- we're learning that having a little bit of strength and power is really helpful. So I'll have somebody do even something as simple as like a sit to stand, progress to one leg sit to stand, right? So being able, you've probably done this, right? Being able to stand on one leg and reach your butt back to sit down on a chair really slowly and stand up with one leg. When we think of running, it's a single leg sport. You're not running and hopping on two feet. You're landing on one leg in a single leg squat. So um, being able to perform a single leg squat properly is is a really important one. My second category is that glute med category or that side to side category. So a lot of people will do band walks, right? Or monster walks. You have a band around your ankles, those resistance rubbery bands. You're sort of taking side steps until you feel that burn on the outside of the hips. Okay. That's activating the, the muscle that actually stabilizes your hips when you land on one leg. The third piece of that's important to endurance athletes is, is balance. So single leg balance. Again, every time you land on one foot, you're sort of quickly undergoing a, a single leg balance stance. So even just as simple, I say in bare feet, you're waiting for the microwave. You're waiting for the bus. Stand on one foot. Um, when you think of your foot, I think of it like a tripod. You want equal pressure between the, the big toe, the pinky toe, and the heel and keeping that tripod posture. It's much harder than you think, just standing for longer than, you know, a few seconds on one foot. And then obviously, if that's easy, you can stand on something foamy or um, wiggly, you can close your eyes, you can turn your head, you can make that more challenging. And then the third one is core. I think that there's always some level of core activation. So planks are a super easy one. Most people know how to do like a dead bug type of motion when you're on your back with your alternating kind of hands and legs, even those bird dogs, which would be on your hands and knees um, in that tabletop. So some amount of core. If I were to pick my four favorite, I would say do your band walks, do a single leg sit to stand, 
do single leg balance, um, and do a plank. If that's, if you can fit that in two, three times a week, you're probably already ahead of majority of, of some runners that are missing that piece. Okay. That's good information to know. In season five, we will continue the segment as the dog. If you have any questions related to musculoskeletal health, please email me, send me a message via social media, or click on my website and leave an audio message. Select messages will be answered on the segment. So next, I'm going to talk about some different common runner's injury. And I know um, a lot of people wait until they are too far gone, until they have to shut down or they have a significant season ending injury, just to give some preventative or some like, okay, Ron, you need to go see someone because I actually just talked to one of my friends today who has plantar fasciitis, which we'll start with. Um, So now a lot of people keep running and they'll try a brace or some anti-inflammatories and they get to the point where they can't walk. When is it the time when you need to say, oh, I need to see somebody, whether it be my doctor or my therapist or chiropractor or someone before it gets to the point where they can't race? I'm like, I'm going to do this race and I'm just going to keep running and it'll go away. And that doesn't happen. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, that is a hard question, right? Because running isn't always comfortable, right? Endurance sports are tend to come with some kind of aches and pains. I like lists. I like kind of taking the, the equation out of the athlete, right? It's really hard to be a good judge when you're in the middle of something. So Uh, My guidelines with that is if you are running or doing any activity and your pain is getting progressively worse, more than a three to four out of 10, which is kind of a subjective scale. But if you're getting creeping into that four or five out of 10 pain scale, you need to think about stopping. If you are running and you are altering your mechanics in any way. So I think a lot of people are like, well, if I just sort of shorten my stride and only land on half of my pinky toe, it doesn't hurt anymore. So any type of altered mechanics, same thing with a golf swing or a overhead athlete. If you're, if you're doing some type of biomechanical modification, you probably need to stop or have it evaluated because then you're just going to kind of head down another path of potentially injuring something else. And then pain that's just progressive. Like you can definitely give it a mile or two or three to warm up. But if that pain is not warming up, then you need to be a little bit more concerned. Muscles warm up, other structures don't warm up. So things that get progressively worse as you train typically are something that needs to be evaluated. And what are some things that people can do, say, if they have plantar fasciitis and they they either don't have the time or to prevent it from progressing? They notice some heel pain when they run. What are some things that that person can do to to try to trip before it gets to the point or until they get to the doctor? Because sometimes it's hard to get to an appointment or to they get to a physical therapist and their insurance may not cover it or all of the many things that keep us from going <laughs> to keep yeah. <laughs> we know this. We know this. You know, plantar fasciitis in particular is a um, an issue of sort of the fascia along the entire back of the leg. So um, stretching the calves and stretching the hamstrings, which is the muscle on the back of the legs, is your kind of first thing. Typically, we hold stretches for 20 to 30 seconds. There's a lot of ways to stretch. You want to stretch sometimes with your knee straight when you're doing a, a calf stretch and sometimes with your knee bent to get sort of different parts of that muscle. Taking a lacrosse ball or um, a golf ball and rolling it along the bottom of the foot can be really helpful as well. Plantar fasciitis typically is an issue of the fascia where it attaches into the calcaneus or the heel bone. So if you can kind of eliminate the tugging 
on that fascia on the heel bone by loosening it up or massaging it out yourself, that can alleviate some of your discomfort. Same thing, you also want to massage the back of your leg, right? So there's the stick, there's hypervolts, there's lacrosse balls, there's foam rollers, doing different kind of soft tissue releases on the back of the, the calf are really important as well. And then, you know, again, not to kind of beat a dead horse, but typically then we strengthen all of those same things. We strengthen your glute muscles. We strengthen your balance muscles. We strengthen your core muscles. We have to figure out, you know, why was the plantar fascia sort of the weakest link? We need to look at your footwear. I think with plantar fasciitis in particular too, the feet and footwear is really important. So, you know, determining are you an overpronator, an underpronator, what's going on with the number of miles that you have on your shoes, so all of those things, some simple arch support or good change of shoes, if it's early on in plantar fasciitis, oftentimes does the trick too. So those are sort of my like go-to initial thoughts on that. Okay. What about ankle sprains? I know you mentioned you had a few when you were playing on basketball and a lot of people get them and they just keep running. I didn't do anything to them. But I mean, one ankle sprain leads to two, three, four usually. Yeah. You know, ankle sprains are so funny because for some reason they're not like taking that serious, right? Like a lot of doctors will just be like, oh, just rest and ice and, you know, tape it up or whatever. And, and you know, I, I could follow up with the research, but they've done some research that like most glute med weakness, like people with glute med weakness have a history of ankle sprain. There's some connection between the glute med and the ankle, which is sort of fascinating. The glute media uh, is the is the key to the list. <laughs> I mean, I know you're going to be like that lady. I had her on. All she talked about was her glute meat. But it's just like, I always say like, we can fix 80% of things if people know how to turn on their glute meat. I agree from, from my years of therapy. I mean, there's mechanics. I mean, I don't want to downplay what we do, but like, that's a really good place to start. So, you know, ankle sprains is a ligament injury. So ligament is different than tendon and muscle, right? So ligament is a passive stabilizer. So once you've torn it, stretched it, whatever, it can maybe scar down and heal, but it's, it typically tends to be kind of stretched out. And so balancing on one leg, big deal. The motion particularly that we strengthen is eversion. So moving our toes, you know, if you're looking at your left foot, moving your toes to the left. So outside, you know, away from your body with a resistance band, even just like balancing on one leg on your tippy toes, right? Because a lot of times the ankle injury happens when you're in plantar flexion or that tippy toe position. So it's really turning on some of those kind of lower balance uh, muscles to kind of take up the slack for that ligament that's sort of stretched out or not doing its job. Okay. Another one is, well, it's two more. Runner's knee. Oh gosh. <laughs> what is that? What is that? Right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, runner's knee is, I think, a catch-all term for sort of typically front of the knee pain, right? So for us, it can be um, patella tendinitis, which is sort of the quadricep muscle, which is the muscle that runs down the front of the thigh, um, ends in the patella tendon as it attaches below the knee. And that can get really irritated. It's usually ir- irritated with um, a new onset of activity, running, jumping, uh, more impact. Um, runner's knee is also sometimes commonly referred to as a um, patellofemoral issue. So a kneecap tracking issue. Those are probably your two kind of classic examples of runner's knee. And so same thing when we treat those, we look at our categories, right? We strengthen our glutes. We do work on balance. We want to make sure in those particular situations that your IT band and your quads and your hamstrings are nice and loose. So doing your flexibility, stretching, mobility work is going to be really important. Same thing. There's some there's some bracing or taping that you can sometimes do. A, a lot of times what happens with runner's knee is it's almost so painful, it's hard to do the therapy exercises. So that's a real struggle for us. So if we can um, stabilize or use a brace or taping kind of temporarily to allow you to be able to do the exercises properly to get over the hump, that can be really helpful as well as kind of getting the right muscles then doing the task that that tape or that brace is doing. 
So that's, yeah, this, the same kind of routine with these lower extremity injuries. You actually mentioned the next one, the IT band friction syndrome. Yeah. So the IT band is, again, it's not a muscle. It's a piece of fascia, right? And it runs all the way from the top of your hip and it attaches below the knee. I think of the IT band as, again, if we're thinking of it like as a passive stabilizer versus an active stabilizer, it's sort of a passive stabilizer to the side of your body. So the IT band will get really tight when the glutes are weak because it's trying to stabilize. And so I always say, you know, everyone says foam roll your IT band, which is important. But if you start foam rolling your IT band and take away your passive stabilizer before you start strengthening the glutes and the other stabilizer muscles, you're going to actually have a bit of an imbalance. So you have to do some of the strengthening with the loosening of the IT band. The foam roll is really great to attack the IT band kind of all along up and down the side of the leg. So you go all the way from the top of the hip, kind of over that bump on the side. You don't spend too much time on the side all the way down to the top of the knee. And you're really looking for the tender spots and trying to loosen them. A lot of times I'll say you'll stop at a tender spot and you'll bend and straighten your knee while you're on a foam roller. But again, you got to work on your, the below, you know, the knee is sort of the tattletale from the ankle and the hip. So if there's knee issues, it usually means you have a balance or a, a um, instability at the foot and ankle and a weakness at the, the glutes or the, the hips. So you kind of got to work those two pieces so that the middle isn't getting sort of tossed around and overworking. Part of my podcast is to have guests who have overcome obstacles to make it to their finish line. Can you tell me about an obstacle that you had to overcome either in your career or when you um, participated in a lot of sports when you were younger or just in life in general? Gosh, that's such a hard question. I'm like, which which way can it, should I go, right? <laughs> you can do multiple <laughs> ones if you want. Yeah, I mean, I you know, I think that, gosh, I mean, when I think about my career, you know, I think one of the biggest obstacles is a little bit your mental health or you're sort of believing in yourself. Like I know that I started this business in 2013 and I sometimes I'm like, I don't know who I thought I was that I should, you know, walk into this. I rented space from a, a one of the larger PT companies and I walked into the CEO's office and I said, can I rent space in the front of your clinic and open a training room? And so I had to overcome, you know, really sort of like a self doubt and like anxiety. I said, People don't typically realize, but I actually suffer from some pretty significant anxiety. But since I talk so much, people don't really realize that. And so I think I talk too much to cover up for it. I don't know. But so I had to overcome, you know, a bit of like kind of your own self-doubt that you can do something bigger. That would be sort of my big kind of professional thing. Like I still sort of am like, you know, what do they talk about this, this imposter syndrome? I still sometimes am kind of laugh it's kind of cool. We started a recovery room and we have like a PT clinic and I partnered with some really awesome women and we're, you know, we have eight clinics now. And so I sometimes don't really realize that I'm part of that. And so, you know, I think that that's a big piece on the mental, you know, the mental health and just sort of confidence spectrum of things. So that would probably be my maybe biggest uh, barrier or uh, thing to get over, right? It's kind of a constant battle, right? To remind yourself, like, you deserve to be here and do these things. It is. You should be on a podcast and you do have a lot of good information to share, even if you're sometimes think, do I have a lot of good information you to share? You do have a lot of good information to share. You do. And it's weird because when other people talk about you, because I'm at, well, I've been knowing her for a while. She was like, you're amazing. She, I, I guess I am. You do <laughs> You do this, you do that, you do that. I do. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. Exactly. You're you're a surgeon and you have a podcast and you're doing Iron Man and it's like, wait a second, I'm awesome, right? You don't think about it. It's like, you know, I'm just me, you know? Yeah. 
Yeah, you so sell our shelves short sometimes, it's I guess. You hear other people tell you that, and it's, you know, sometimes you just got to reflect and, and take it in, even if it makes you a little uncomfortable. <laughs> <laughs> so another question, if an adult Liz could go back and talk to your younger self, what advice would you give yourself? Oh, gosh. What advice would I give myself? Yeah, I mean, it's probably still along the same path of the self-doubt, you know, confidence thing. You know, I belong in this profession and I belong to have a voice in it and um, I could do, you know, really great things. And um, so maybe just not having as much anxiety about the outcome or what people are going to think about it. You know, probably some of that, just who cares what other people think, maybe like, you know, not to be short, but I think we spend a lot of time doubting and, and worried about what other people think about what you're doing or what you're up to. I started like, a, you know, I'm in an interesting place because I'm I'm older and I'm 42 and I'm just starting a family. And people were like, you are too into your career and you waited too long for family. People you know, actually like, told, told you that? Well, or maybe I told myself or I assumed society. Maybe it was more that. Maybe society was telling me that. And so I tell my younger self, like, it all worked out. I did the career thing and I still ended up meeting somebody when you meet somebody and have a you know family when you have a family. And um, you can kind of do it all, right, if you really want to. And, and maybe you don't want to. Maybe you don't want that other part. So maybe I yeah, tell my, my younger self it's probably going to all work out. So just chill out a little bit. Enjoy the process, huh? <laughs> Enjoy the process, exactly. So do you have a bucket list as far as your business and career? Or do you feel like you're like in it right now? Gosh, yeah. Do I have a bucket list? You know, I found some really amazing partners um, that share a vision. I think that's key. Yeah, I just I really want to just kind of like healthcare is so hard right now and it's so messed up with insurance and authorizations. And so what we really wanted to do as, you know, from my business standpoint is just meet people where they are and offer options, right? Like we try to work, like we obviously take insurance, but we try to offer cash options and we try to have membership options. So you know, I think the bucket list is still just trying to be like accessible to a lot of people, right? And just helping, you know, in, in whatever way we can. Yeah, I know it's hard because with insurance and people change insurance with people's jobs and you're not in network and therapy's expensive. So it's kind of hard to the way, and some people don't really know how to navigate. I work in healthcare and it's hard to navigate myself. It is. I mean, you you know, and there's so many people who are like, I got insurance, I can come see you. And then we check and they have like a $7,000 deductible. Yeah, or they have seven visits or something crazy. You know, so like, it's really hard. It's and I'm the same way. Like I live in, you know, insurance every day, and it still catches me sometimes. And I'm like, how? I mean, that was one of the reasons for starting the recovery, you know, a long time ago was to just try to offer people some accessibility. But yeah, it's it's uh it's hard. <laughs> Our healthcare system is that could be a whole nother podcast probably. <laughs> That's true. That's true. So if people wanted to find one of your clinics or a recovery room, how would they go about doing that? We kind of keep the businesses separate but together. So you can find them through either one. You can research impactphysicaltherapy.com or you can um look up chicagorecoveryroom.com and they're going to have links back and forth to each other. We have different yeah, Chicagoland locations so you can just look them up there and reach out that way. I, yeah, I'm available as well. I mean, I'm happy to give my, my email or you can reach out if you, if you do any of the info, uh, contact us on the websites, those usually go to my inbox. So I can, I can catch you that way as well. <laughs> so another question, if a person wants a run analysis, do they have to be a patient or can they, um, do it through the recovery room or just basically pay for that specific service. Yeah. So we have a, a cash option where you come in and um, you're just looking at your mechanics. Um, it's usually a two session visit. Um, we look at you from 
you know, three or four different angles, break it down, look at things side by side with running symmetry is, is something we really look at. So it was the right leg look different than the left leg at the same part of the gait cycle. So we could do that. Yeah. For a cash, um, we charge 150. It's, you get, you get a lot of bang for your buck for that. And then otherwise, if you are a current physical therapy patient, you have pain or dysfunction and running happens to be one of your goals. Oftentimes we roll it right into a physical therapy visit as well. So it's a little case by case, but you can kind of uh, get to it either way. And what do you actually look at when you do the runners? You said side by side, but what specifics do you look at when you do the running analysis? Yeah. So a big thing with running is, um, so from like the back view, the posterior view, we're looking at again, what those hips are doing. So a picture is worth a thousand words. So sometimes people don't believe they have weak glutes. And so if you freeze frame somebody at the middle of their stance on the right leg in the middle of their stance on the left leg, you'll notice maybe we call it a hip drop that one side is dropping. When the side is dropping, it usually means there's a weakness again in, in the glute muscle. Um, we can do almost like a shoe or a foot assessment on in running where you initially contact the ground, what your foot does when you contact the ground. Are you an overpronator? Do you pronate too fast? From the side, it's really important to look at where you're contacting in relationship to your center of mass or that kind of ground reaction. So, you know, everyone talks about being a heel striker or midfoot striker, forefoot striker. So we can tell you what you are and, and maybe give you some advice on what's potentially a little bit better. So overstriding a lot of times is associated with heel striking. And when you strike way out in front of yourself, um, you get what's called a breaking impulse or like a decrease in momentum kind of going backwards um, versus sort of assisting you with running and falling forwards. So we do a lot of cadence kind of calculating and training as well. So mm-hmm. uh, we find that people who heel strike or overstride tend to have slower cadences. So sometimes just bumping up the steps per minute can be a really simple fix um, for some mechanical issues. You know, and then, I mean, you can look at anything. You can look at, you know, arm swing. You can look at head position, kind of how upright they are, you know, from their trunk. Are they leaning? Are they standing actually with too upright of posture? Uh, we look at vertical displacement. Are you kind of running and hopping uh, versus sort of falling forwards? Those are some of the most common findings that you'll see. Um, with the and you, do you recommend not a brand of shoe, but a type versus um, if they need some stability or neutral or? Yeah, it just depends on your foot posture, right? So there's there's kind of there's stability shoes, there's neutral shoes, there's minimal shoes. And so depending on your foot position or posture, we, we recommend a type. So if you are more of a pronator, you're going to need more of a stability shoe. Sometimes if you're more of a supinator, you actually don't want a stability shoe. You want more of a neutral shoe or a cushioned shoe. So again, that's almost just kind of a case by case situation based on your foot anatomy. And also read on your site that you do bike fitting. We do. Yeah. So I didn't know you really did that because <laughs> people have a hard time finding bike fitters. We don't do a lot of it. Like, so I'm not going to be able to put you on the bike and tell you what bike to buy. But once you buy your bike and you bring it in and you tell me about what's going on. So a lot of times people have, you know, like a hamstring issue or a knee issue. What we do is we look at the optimal position of your body on the bike and we actually change the bike to fit your body. So it's a little, I mean, we might work on some range of motion and stuff like that. But the thing that's neat with a bike is that you can kind of make it fit the person. And so doing subtle changes to like, for example, your seat position um, can change the angle of your knee. Um, It can change like your pedal stroke. If we move your seat forward, we're going to engage your hamstrings more. If we move your seat back, you know, so there's some really subtle things and it depends on your sport too. Um, If you're and in a triathlete, then you don't want to bias a hamstring or a quad during cycling because you, you need your quads, right? If you're just 
you know, doing a century ride and you're all banging out the quad. So then you can set it up to be, you know, more biased to use the quad. So depends on the, the type of athlete and the, the anatomy of the cyclist as well. And we just try to make that fit as best as possible. So as what well, and, and same as well. So if, if you're in therapy, it'll be covered. And can you pay out a pot? Is that about the same price or same exact price? Yep. Okay. Okay. Yeah, I'm gonna put your information where people can find you as far as your um your website, and I recommend you all the time to my friends. Awesome, we appreciate that. Yeah, so I mean that www.chicagorecoveryroom.com is probably your best. I handle all of the contact uh, forms and reach out and troubleshoot stuff on that website. So that's probably your best way to get in touch with me. Any last minute words of advice for my listeners? No, just that you're awesome. You're awesome. And thanks for doing this podcast, right? And spreading some information. And I think it's really great, right? Really valuable information just to hear different perspectives and learn from different kind of practitioners and parts of the like endurance world. There's so many pieces. It is. Cause I remember one of my friends was a triathlete and she skis as well. She was like, it takes a village because with all the people <laughs> and the injuries yeah. and just to, I don't know, just and to stay in the peak shape, you just need a whole bunch of people involved. It does. There's so much education around it. And, you know, and I would say like, you know, not th- there's differences in practitioners, right? Like with anything, you got to find the right person that sort of like understands you, understands your goals and, and you know, hopefully is familiar with your sport or at least treating that population. You can kind of end up with some in the wrong hands and then feel really discouraged. Like you're on a bike and your therapist is drinking coffee, huh? Yeah. I mean, seriously, she wouldn't remember. I was like a 16 year old nobody, right? But yeah, it's so funny. I mean, that that's, yeah, yeah, yeah. I never, do you ever see, I mean, you never, I never get to drink coffee. <laughs> <laughs> I have my iced coffee. It lasts me till two o'clock because I don't get to, you know, I'm like, never get a hot coffee. I never get to enjoy that while it's hot. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks again. You bet. That wraps up. This episode of Running is Cheaper Than Therapy podcast. Thank you for tuning in. If you already haven't, please download Running is Cheaper Than Therapy podcast on Apple, Spotify, or however you listen to your favorite podcast. If you have any questions, concerns, or possible show topics, Please email Run It Is Cheaper Than Therapy, OLB, Omaha Love Brown. Again, that's Run It Is Cheaper Than Therapy, Omaha Love Brown at gmail.com. I also can be reached via Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and YouTube. Handle We Life, We Love. OUI Life, OUI Love. Thank you, and please tune in again. <laughs>